0: Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode in the second series of The New Romantics with me, Will Eaves and Professor Sophie Scott. I'm a novelist and poet, Sophie is a psychologist and neuroscientist, and together we look at the intersection between literature and the sciences and how those two communities and disciplines speak to each other by looking at a paper in each episode, scientific paper, and then looking at some short stories or poems or dramas. And this is, episode two, is our phased reintroduction to live recording, because Sophie and I are amazingly in the same room. It's been a long time, Sophie. How have you been coping?
1: I I don't know if I've been coping all that well. I have been... I've found it very odd. Like, if I... Like my days have been very, very busy, but if I let a little gap emerge in the day, this dreadful, gnawing anxiety sort of just lets itself be seen somewhere in my psyche and i suspect that's true for a lot of people yeah and it's
0: not just a that's not
1: just a reaction to seeing me in the flesh again so it's it's lovely to see you it's weird because i've seen you on i've talked to you i feel like i have seen you i have you know there's some i've had contact wow. it's it's strange yeah, and that that's something probably
0: we'll be addressing later on voices and what you see in the voice because it comes into one of the stories but we're going to start with the scientific paper uh which is called Ready for this? Taking an insect-inspired approach to bird navigation. Because the overall theme of this this episode is really going to be journeys and how we know where we are in the world. And this paper is um, by David Pritchard and Susan D. Healy. And Sophie's going to introduce it and talk about it
1: now. I thought you might find this interesting. I found it interesting. What it's trying to do is to apply models of how insects navigate their environment and apply that to birds. And you might think, well, doesn't everything kind of navigate the same way? Well, it turns out, no. So we've been taking a very kind of mammal-centred view on navigation, and there's reasonably good evidence that one of the ways that mammals navigate is by having some kind of internalised map of space, which could represent... What things are like that out there in an abstract way, and then you within that space, and you one of the ways that you navigate is using that somewhat abstracted information, and we do also use you know what things look like and landmarks and other things to guide us, but we have a that we have quite a high level representation of space that is sort of coloured how we think other animals will probably do the same task, and of course they don't. So insects navigate very well. Insects are good at finding things. Um, and they talk a lot about ants and flying insects in this paper. But it turns out that, that, because their eyes work very differently and they process information very differently from us, they navigate in a way that is driven a lot by what you see when you're moving. So there's a lovely description of bees flying round things, uh, which is telling them where the thing is, both by the, the thing that they're flying around, but also the movement of stuff at different speeds it's going kind to of parallax view that's
0: the fan, that's the really fascinating part of the paper i think yeah. motion parallax yes. the idea that you it's not so much what the object or the landmark is or whether it's kind of recognizable as whatever it is but it's relationship to relative and absolute distance yeah. because of how things are moving in the near to the creature and far away
1: And in a way that only reveals itself when movement starts. And I thought that was a really lovely point, that you are seeing the world by your movement through the world. And because we can sort of sit in a room and see objects in it, we think, well, that's important information. And that is important information. But actually, as soon as you are moving, there is all this other kind of information. Even for us, we use motion parallax. We just don't realise that we do it. Yeah, and what they're trying to do is to apply this to birds and make a suggestion that um, you might be seeing the same kind of behaviour. So they've got this example of a hummingbirds. I think, in the, I think these guys must be in the US because they talk about people setting out their hummingbird feed, feeders they're once a in, year. Um,
0: they're in uh, all around particularly British Columbia and um, so that,
1: that part of North America and Canada. And there are things that you put out to feed your hummingbirds. And if you're late putting out your hummingbird feeder you'll see hummingbirds, who ha- you haven't seen all year, reappear, and they go to where the feeder should be and look for it. And you think, couldn't they look and see it's not there?
0: And sometimes it's quite close, yes. they've only moved it a little
1: bit. Yes, yeah. yes. so it's very, very spatial, um, the but it's hummingbird's representation, rather than object-based, where is the big red thing that I would should be looking for. So the argument that they're making is that actually if you take an insect-based view, that the information is being location is being encoded by the sort of the your movement through this landscape and matching at this much more global level that's telling you where things are rather than look for the big red thing
0: at the outset of the paper they make the point just to sort of delve into the history of this a bit they make the point that this insect-based view um, of you know things moving in dynamic relation to each other uh Well, it's something that's obviously known about insects, but it hasn't been applied to birds before. And and sort of, why is that? Because in previous experiments to do with bird navigation, we've thought that they have a more... that the avian way of seeing is more closely related to mammalian ways of doing it, and now we're changing our mind. Is that right?
1: I think that's basically it. I think if you were to come up with a solution for how things navigate, if you'd done it all from flies you would come up with a completely different idea of what the brain's eye view of navigation is than if you started with birds or arguably if you started with rats and humans, which is, of course, where we did start. So that's that's exactly the direction. And there's another sort of tension in there, which is the difference between when we test birds' navigation abilities in the laboratory versus when we do it in the wild. Because when you do it in the wild, they start to, again, look a lot more like the insects. Mm. And that's probably because of the biases we're introducing by what we do in the lab, we're looking for landmarks because that's what we expect the birds to use. And so they will, if you take away other stuff, they will use landmarks. Well, that's, that is,
0: is, yes, that's a that's because their kind of field of experience in the lab is so reduced. Mm. It's quite tricky, I suppose, to... I mean, obviously the lab is an artificial environment that we've created. We've introduced it in that sense. But I suppose if you can imagine a, a wild environment where the stimuli in the landmarkers are reduced, and this might be one of the things to do with environmental degradation where things change, then some of the lab findings might be reproduced in the wild.
1: I mean there are many things that start changing as soon as you go down to a laboratory context where you're trying to control so much to then be able to look at, you know, what, what are then the effects of other small things that I change. It's both answering a question that you've asked So you might be only ever likely to find the answers to the questions that you've asked. You've set up the environment to test the thing that you think is important. But also it is very reduced and just different and less of it. And of course the animals you're working with are highly, well I'd say probably vanishingly unlikely to have been introduced from the wild. They would have grown up in different environments. So it doesn't mean to say you can't find out anything and they don't try and make that point but they say there are differences. And, you, and that might well be the case. You could find that in the wild, if you took away motion parallax cues, then other features are, do become more important. It's just that in the wild, motion parallax really rules for a lot of these animals. And, d-
0: and does it change... And this is something that I couldn't quite get from the paper, but I think they sort of allude to. They bring in other species. They're looking at the hummingbird. I, I think partly because a hummingbird is very very small and it's you know and it's a a nectar feeder and it actually does a lot of the things they didn't quite say this but it does a lot of the things that insects do as well as seeing in the same way it's a it's 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 food source is rather like a kind of you know bees Mm. it's it's nectar and flowers does the view of how birds see change the bigger the species gets or, or if the, ki- the kind of avian species changes. I mean, there's an interesting discussion of head movements mm-hmm. and eyesight because insects have uh, compound eyes fixed to their heads. So in order to kind of, however it is they see, in order to see different, they have to move the whole of the head. And they do this in order to get a dynamic view of what's going on in their environment. I think the writers of the paper are suggesting this is this changes with different bird species. So that if you have pigeons, they do some of the same things, but they have that you know funny sort of dove-like mm-hmm. thing of you know pushing the thrusting the head forward, and that's to gain some kind of spatial recognition awareness in the same way. Um, but that it's not necessarily true of say a large bird predator mm-hmm. where the eyes are as with a lot of predators they're more sort of they're fixed they're forward they're looking forward and the view is they don't because they are the predators they don't sort of have to have 180 degrees on either side they right. need to be able to fix the 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 prey in the in the in the center of their view finding mechanism i mean is that is that a, a rough précis of what's going on
1: i think so and i think it it's, it is very interesting if you think about this as a way of saying what are the, the kind of requirements of the sensory systems and the brains and how those change with the things that the animals do. So a huge difference between the pigeons that they talk about and the hummingbirds is that the pigeons fly and they walk around. And they do different things and they move their heads differently when they do both. They just, so we think that pigeons bob their heads back and forward. And in fact, exactly like you say, they move their head forward And then holding their head still, they bring their body up to meet it. So it looks to us like the heads are going back and forth. But actually, what they're doing is they're maintaining their gaze in the same place. And they're bringing... It's as stable as they can do whilst walking on two feet. So they're sort of keeping their body... They move the head and then the body, head and then the body. So in fact, the eyes stay in the same place. So they're getting accurate visual information. Um... And hummingbirds have to do something similar to that when they're flying. So hummingbirds, if they're looking for the nectar, they have to be able to stabilise their gaze with the inherent nonlinearities of the fact that they're hovering. You know, so they, they, a lot of their brain's actually dedicated to ma- being able to maintain steady eye fixation, but for a completely different reason. Um,
0: yeah, because so, I think, because they're, they're obviously looking for the, the food source. The, the business of the pigeon projecting itself visually into a space before the body catches up is surely partly defensive.
1: It's you free, want yeah. to see
0: I mean it's at a at a micro level, it's about wanting to see the 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 area is safe before you bring
1: It's safe and is there something I could eat? Yeah. I once Hector dropped a brightly orange coloured snack on the floor at Bristol station and <laughs> was so a pigeon completely at the other end of the station, <laughs> which then solidly walked all the way up in front of us and ate it. Um, they actually have much better visual acuity than us pigeons. You can't do experiments with pigeons and computer screens because they see the refresh rate that we don't see. Very interesting. It's quite extraordinary. They see, so change. They see the change because they've got much, much, much finer grained visual abilities than us. And then that changes again. So they make they make the point that birds that spend most of their time flying over large bodies of water sea
0: like terns and gulls yes. and
1: yeah different again um so i think birds because perhaps of the the sheer range of the places that you find birds doing things and how much of that can vary do seem to give us these very different visual systems which might well also be the case with mammals but it's i what you get with birds is it really affects the structure of the eye so we have um and this is a bit crazy. So we have our greatest visual sensitivity at what's called the fovea. So if you hold your finger up in front of you and you look at that, the fingernail, what you're doing is you're fixating, you're looking with both eyes at the point where you have the greatest visual discrimination, both of colour and of just what's there. And in fact, if you look at your finger and then move another finger away, even by the time you're six inches away... Of the thing you're looking at, you're actually seeing very little there. So you, we fixate, we look at things with this fovea where we've got most information. And several birds have more than one fovea. So birds like pigeons have a fovea that's looking forward and one that's looking sideways. Mm. So they are simultaneously seeing exactly for the reasons you say. They need to know what's out there, but they also need to know what's after them. Yeah. And you get other birds where the fovea is basically one flat line across the the horizon, because that's where they need to see things. Mm. So it's quite extraordinary, the difference in the form and function that you see and what that means for their perception of the world, what it would mean to have two areas of fantastically good visual...
0: It is fascinating. Vision. I mean, I I wondered about the description of the girls, though, because I absolutely take the point that if you're thinking of a kind of sort of, you, you know, a, a geographical, a sort of topographical view of the sea... Then yeah, I, I I quite see that you want to know what's happening in the the horizon. You know, you might want to see a body on the water um, where there might be a, a food source, and then one thinks of gulls going after trawlers and things because yeah. you know because it's they 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 can see that that's an option, um, but surely the view changes if, as it were, the bird is diving, because then the environment is is a field in front of you and yeah. it's it's not so much it's flat it just fills the view mm. and there's no longer any top bottom and it's middle edge. Yeah. Yeah.
1: The other thing that I was quite struck by in a talk I went to a few years ago about pigeons, and I presume this is true of lots of birds, is that, unlike our eyes, although you can think of the retina at the back of the eye as being an outpost of the brain, it really is part of your central nervous system, but in pigeons it's under phenomenal amounts of control, so the pigeons can actually adapt what is happening at their retina based on what they're doing that their brain knows about. So perhaps the whole visual information itself is much more open for modulation at the eye before you get any further back in birds than it is in us. It's interesting.
0: I mean, can I ask a, a really general question that slightly follows on from that, which is that when we talk about a, a bird recognising a situation, however, that you're remembering it, um, you know, and mapping uh, over seasons and, and life cycles. Or, or migration cycles mapping an environment like the feeder for the hummingbird, mm-hmm. which is there one year and the next year it's moved a bit um, what do we sort of mean when we say they remember where it is
1: uh well, I think we normally mean it in a completely functional way, so we mean that the, how accurate they were in returning to that what that means for the bird's experience you know we have we don't know. Yeah. We have no idea. I mean, it is extraordinary if you look at how birds do, like migrations. For, you know which seems to be partly based on you know again what they can see, matching landscapes, but also potentially sensitivity to things like magnetic. I mean, fields. It's, in a way it's, it's a
0: bananas question. But but it but the reason I ask it is just because in the course of these conversations with you, you know, I've I've come to sort of think so much more about what what we mean when we mm. say we remember something, or, and what memory is. Mm. Um, and so you you naturally kind of extend that to. Well, one has a kind of anthropocentric, you know, snobbery about um, being a higher-functioning creature who who remembers more precisely or in, or in greater kind of dynamic detail. And of course, that's that's not necessarily true if one's granting a different species, a, a bird, as you just described with pigeons, um, greater visual acuity because there's something there functionally um anatomically that's more sophisticated really than the human yeah so one begins to think about what a more sophisticated kind of avian memory might be yeah this whole idea that theirs is just a it's just a sort of very animal response to use that term incredibly broadly it's just a very animal response to the environment and their needs and so Mm. on and, and predators and prey and food sources and um there's there's no reflection going on. There's no recursive sort of, mm. um, you know, self-questioning, if you like, which we think is just our problems. But one wonders, doesn't one? one, one you know, if, if there's this retinal specialisation that varies from species to species, and, and as a corollary of that, um, multiple fovea um, and sensitivity to movement in an environment, and it's clear that they do remember from season to season where something is, then that, maybe the memory part itself, is equally sophisticated.
1: It would be fascinating to think about what it would mean as well, because, I mean, something that... The reason why I hoped you'd like this paper... and I, is, I loved it. It's because, you I mean, you pick up on this in Murmur, but like, trying to think what it would mean... Not just what is it like to be a bat, but actually, what what is it like? What other how different could thought be? What would the represent if thought is some kind of experience of the representation of information? What is that information? What's that like if the information is is different in some yeah. way? Yeah, yeah, qualitatively different in terms of what you have access to, and what you can do. I mean, it sounds stupid. I was looking at been looking at a lot of crows recently and just thinking what does the world look like when your main way of interacting with the world is through something on the front of your face Mm. and sometimes your feet what is the world like if that's you know do we see the world because we have two hands and because we can break things down with those two hands how does does that give us certain ways of thinking about the world that are just arising from how we interact with the world
0: i think that's i mean it's endlessly interesting but the is that that is the Study of comparative psychology isn't it yeah. but but I mean I you know when we say with crows that they can count, which they obviously can um, but we're using counting to mean it's got a semantic meaning hasn't yeah. it it's got it, it, it's digits and its quantities and mm-hmm. it's adding stuff to stuff so that it you know you get a comp you get a sort of um, a sum and a result a compound thing and Some of that may be true for a crow that can count, you know, the classic Aesop's fable of the number of pebbles that puts into the jar so they can drink, and some of it may not be. It Mm. may have a completely different, inverted commas, meaning.
1: And certainly, if you look at counting, all around the world there are different bases that people have used to sort of count with, so we use ten. And in fact, that's by far the most common. And you've got to think, well, hang on, Four fingers, one thumb on each hand, ten altogether. That is, so our counting is completely conflated with the way that we count, and the way that we count is really embodied. Yeah. So what does that mean for a crow?
0: Yeah. No, or or a computer. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean that's the really interesting thing that Turing came up with. In order to avoid certain uh, contradictions in programming, you know, when he first wrote the um, the programs for the, you know. Uh, Manchester computer <laughs>
1: he used he
0: used this impossible <laughs> and very peculiar base thirty two <laughs> notation, <laughs> which really only he could manipulate. He, he, he was about the only person who could. Everyone else was going, "Oh Christ!" <laughs> so find their way through these sort of you know, wads of notation. Uh, Completely unamenable to human (laughs) interpretation, but it was what was interesting about it was it was done really for the computer's benefit. It was an attempt of trying to sort of see it from really another organism's point of view,
1: where
0: where there would be fewer snarl ups, fewer contradictions, fewer um, you know instances of what we'd now call buffering. Yeah, You know, yeah. Where, where, where loops develop and uh, the creature, in this case, the computer can't get out of a tight spot.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and if, interestingly, just thinking on, on, on the hoof, that's slightly what you see. You can see why people in, in literature often make an analogy between the behaviour of ants and something mechanical. Because they, precisely because of this reliance on a sort of motion parallax view of the world and where things used to be, and the repetitive way in which they come back to a food source but also have to learn that it's no longer there, it's another environment. When you see the trails of ants changing, it is really rather like a piece of buffering.
1: Mm-hmm. It
0: has to repeat several times before it modifies. Yeah, well,
1: that's a good analogy.
0: But no, it's a it's a great paper, and it's also... So, just name check the authors again, because in case listeners want to go and look at it, David J. Pritchard and Susan D. Healy. You you can get to it online. Um, to my shame, this is something you can't always do with some of the things I choose, but that's because I, <laughs> <The ones laughs> I are to choose such weird stuff. <laughs> yes. But um, yeah, it is very good, and there's a lovely, there's a really beautiful passage at the end. I just wanted to sort of read out because it's so. It's so nicely done. Similar to hummingbirds, wild ground squirrels and chipmunks will search at the previous location of a moved feeder, even when the feeder is clearly visible in its new location. As for traditional studies of birds, this spatial ability has been attributed to cognitive maps based on relations between environmental cues. Using an insect-inspired approach could provide an alternative explanation for such feats of navigation. And just as in birds, there are good reasons to consider such an approach seriously. It takes us on to some stories that I've chosen um, this week, which are, on the face of it, very different, but which are, I think, also about journeys and finding where you are uh, in an environment and understanding what other creatures, or other people are doing. The first person I thought we'd look at is um, a wonderful Italian writer called uh, Leonardo Shasha still insufficiently translated in English. And this lovely book of stories, The Wine Dark Sea, is a Sicilian author. So a lot of the stories are are based in and around Sicily. And there are some very funny ones. Um, There's a marvelous story, which I haven't chosen, called Mafia Western, which is is just a little synopsis of um, the different ways in which someone falls in love with someone else and a vendetta is pursued because it's the wrong daughter, you know, not suitable for the man, and then it ends with a shootout. It's rather good. It's all done in two and a half pages. And another one's to do with the Mafia, in which two people are arguing about the etymology of the word Mafia. W- what does it mean? And you find out, as the story progresses, that the two people arguing about the meaning of the term are, in fact, mafiosi. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and has a sort of there's always a whisper of violence in the background. But... But the story I've chosen is called The Long Crossing. And it's both quite a funny story, but also rather moving. Mm. And it's about, um, I think it's set at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. And it's really about the emigrant experience. It's about a cohort of Sicilian um, peasants who've, Sold everything they have in order to pay for the trip to America, and some of their relatives have already gone there and have, have, and have occasionally come back uh, to the home island and they 're relatively wealthy and they look glossy and so the, the the Sicilian relatives want a piece of the action they want mm-hmm. to they want to move to the the city on the hill and they have sold everything um, and they are waiting to board. A boat with everything wrapped up in cardboard suitcases and carpets, and they pay half of the ticket cost on boarding, and then they pay half when they get off. It takes place at night because it's a bit of a moonlight flit, and they they get in the little board the little rowboat that takes them to the larger ship, and they are at sea for. 7 to 10 days 7 to 11 days and then they land again um and again because it's illegal immigration you know they they land um out at sea not not anywhere near staten island or but you near near trenton new jersey and um the guy who's organized the fixer who's organized it all says you know you've got to pay me your your money now before i send you off in the rowboats because you know, we don't we don't want to waste any time on the foreshore you know the police may get to you as soon as you land you must just disappear off into the into the new world and of course what happens is that they they pay all the money and they've been disoriented by their time at sea and then when they as it were, come to and the foreshore, they realise they're still in Sicily. <laughs> um, they meet all these Italians yeah. and they, they find various ways of explaining to themselves that they might be in America yeah. until it dawns on them.
1: Yeah, and they try and discount all the Italian cars they see. Oh, that's, they're just popular cars. They just run around here. Yes, yeah, so that's <laughs> what they buy in America. Yeah. But it's a very good, but in a
0: way, it's a quite a similar thing. It's the way you, you're trying to work out what has changed mm. and your bias. Uh, is toward if you're expecting a change, your bias is towards explaining the change rather than actually seeing what's in front of you.
1: Absolutely, and it's it's. I mean, it's lovely the way he misleads them. I was saying, well, can't you tell? It smells different. It looks different. Well, no else in the world looks like this, and they desperately want it to be true. And all this infi- and the town names and the languages they hear people speaking. They're kind of, oh, it's just heartbreaking. <laughs> and they finally realize where where they are and. Realizing I to have to tell everyone else that we're not back in the new yeah, world. Yeah, the shame it's, of it. Oh, it's to and they kind of collapse there. But it was it. It's, it is what we do. We never look to. There's a problem in psychology called modus tollens and modus ponens. I forget which way it round is, but it basically uh, we are very, very keen to prove a hypothesis, and much less keen to try and disprove it. So in these situations, it's like we, it's like type one and type two errors. Exactly, it? we will look to confirm what we're expecting or what we think the rule is and we unless we are pushed very hard we tend not to look to disconfirm let's look for reasons that we might be wrong about this and it's such a for evidence folks look at the current state of politics no it's true you see it everywhere and it's such a um it's got very very contentious whether or not you can push people out of this and what you can do to push out of it and certainly the last time i looked the the journal cognition completely banned any more papers on this topic (laughs) because <laughs> the, the, the literature got so ill tempered um, but it, you know the bottom line is it's a very very basic way of human reasoning is to look to confirm and not to disconfirm and you have to really push it even personally like knowing this I've caught myself you, know, you find yourself doing it all the time um, and it's exactly that it's a perfect example of a, what you once even when things are looking like they're starting to go wrong they're still looking to confirm it well in, and it's actually funny enough it's a thing you find
0: in you know kind of literary form and structure because if you talk to a sort of screenwriter or um, you know someone in Hollywood not that I know anyone in hollywood but they'll it's all about the development of the story it's always you know how do you there's an inciting moment and then something develops and it it changes then there's a subplot and then there's a crisis and there's a resolution and or, the assumption of course is that is that everything is a sort of action movie and everything is changing. Mm. But the problem with that is that actually that's only half of what human beings are stimulated by. Actually, what they want is... Nested within within that word resolution is something a bit trickier, which is that they also sort of don't want things to change. Mm. They want them to be familiar again. And really, the truth about a lot of really, really good stories is that the story isn't an arrow of change, it's a circle.
1: Mm.
0: You know, that really what you want to do is you want to come back to the beginning and see it anew. And sometimes that's quite a... You know, the journey is actually quite a short one, Mm. the linear journey, or it might not exist at all. And what this story is a lovely example of is that Looked at that that the homing instinct or or the or the homing not an instinct here, but the homing the fact of coming back to the beginning and, and mm-hmm. not having gone anywhere is crucial it's the core of the story, yeah actually nothing has really you're always asking yourself what has changed at all in your life and and, and at a kind of almost a psychological but also on a spiritual level that is something that is very true to the human experience. You know, we we go through momentous changes, and as we get older, we concomitantly feel that very little has changed, and that we have become more and more ourselves. Mm. Uh, and I think that's really important to Shasha's writing because it's so infused with the sense of what it is to be Sicilian. Mm. And Attached, not just to Italy but to an island mm. which is, you know uh, which has particular associations and is poorer often and has, you know the other big thing hanging over it which is the history of the mafia In, in stories as in bird journeys, it's not so much that you're going somewhere and seeing something big, shiny and new as coming back Mm. to the same environment and having to work out what's changed.
1: Um, Maybe this is something we can pick up on another podcast, but I've been reading a lot recently about um, personality and how... And, and people's general experience of their personality tends to be that it's quite stable. We don't, you know, you, you certainly on certain very broad things like extroversion, neuroticism, people don't tend to move around too much, unless you look over their lives, and it actually change quite a lot. And it changes throughout your late teens and early twenties. It's much more in flux than you. So see. it doesn't really, really kind of settles down in your late twenties. And I think that's fascinating, this kind of mm-hmm. period. So we tend to think of, I don't, I've been thinking a lot about sort of what what these things mean for, well, obviously the neuroscience things, but also what it kind of means for your, your sense of self and experience. But if we tend to think of adolescence as being this time of like a state of some liminal space between being a child and being an adult, and it's more like a journey in which your adult self is starting to, make him or herself manifest it's not a quick journey but also it's one that goes on for quite a lot longer than I would have given it credit for it's not done by the time we have a, like an age of adulthood at 18 your brain is still developing then, and your brain's still developing into your early 20s and I think these personality things lagging if anything somewhat later than that mm. it's fascinating because it because it, it's interactive with all the things that then you do at that age will have this tremendous forcing function on what the personality is that you end up with at the end of it. It's not like a a flower that's going to bloom and it's going to look the same no matter what, I suspect. It's got, so know, that's you know, quite
0: interesting. So that actually pers- pers- personality development or personal development yeah. has, has a kind of periodic yeah. quality. Uh, you know, there, there are bursts of it. Different.
1: And there's, there was this other paper recently. They basically took people that were very introverted. So classic introversion is you know, kind of much preferring to, be, you know, preferring to be on your own with other people and um, sometimes even to find it stressful to be with other people. Um, and what they did was they took people and they made them do things. So they took introverts and made them do extrovert things. And it tends to make them more extrovert. It does actually work. So there, there is this possibility of what, what you're like and how it interacts with what you do
0: Could carry on it's really interesting but but i think it's also a relative thing because i think a lot of it is dependent upon your idea of what other people are doing so for example i mean at the moment in lockdown the thing that's been really interesting to me and it's i don't think it's an accident just to do with the sort of uh, unusual (laughs) people i know but i've just seen it broadly quite a lot of people who you would say are classically introvert and don't like or are challenged by social environments, mm. have they've done well in lockdown, actually. And I don't think it's just because it's the environment hasn't changed very much for them. You know, they're still doing what yeah. they would normally do, keeping to themselves, you know, staying at home a lot, only sort of shopping locally. I don't think it's just that. I think it's the fact that other people's lives have been restricted and they've been brought down to sort of their... Mm. A, a comparable range of activity. They no longer feel they're the outliers. Yeah. They yeah. feel, actually, in comparison now to other people, they look similarly, um, functionally, not extrovert, but they're doing... They're rather more like the majority of people.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. a sort of... I think that's true. And I think there's also this... Um, this paper was suggesting it didn't work for everything, all these features, so agreeableness that's it, you can't change it. Now, agreeableness is your own perception of how agreeable you are. Other people don't get to rate you on agreeableness. It's it's all your perception, so that's a whole other thing as well. But it's interesting that your perception of how introvert or extrovert you are can change, whereas your perception of how agreeable you are, that doesn't change.
0: Thinking about um, changes in personality and and, and these sort of, you know, key markers of what we now call identity leads us on to uh, two lovely, very short stories by um, an insufficiently well-known American short story writer, now sadly no longer with us, called Lucia Berlin. And this is in a wonderful selection of her stories. Um, published about four or five years ago, called A Manual for Cleaning Women. And they're very, very short stories, somewhat in the manner of someone like Raymond Carver or, or Richard Yates. Um, plain, hard-edged, um, but extremely compassionate and truthful portraits of working-class life. And they're very close to her life. So she, um, she grew up um, the daughter of a mining engineer and she was in um, Chile for a while. And she came back to America... Um, Married, had four children, met the Black Mountain Poet, started writing, had many struggles with alcoholism herself, and so alcohol finds its way into her stories. But always in the most wonderfully expansive, compassionate way, we always have Mm -hmm. the sense that the things that have really changed her have actually fed into a basic agreeableness, to a, 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 a compassion for other people and an understanding. And she does two really really interesting things in these two stories one is called teenage punk and the other it's called bf and me and the first story teenage punk is just a little snapshot of her bringing her sons up and a neighborhood um, boy who's a bit of an extrovert bit of a wild card um, called jesse Joins them one morning to go very early and look at the cranes as they settle on an irrigation ditch, with a body of water, um, with a sort of uh, stream feeding into it. As they feed, and they take a thermos of coffee, and they take you know something to eat, and they just see this marvelous glistening moment in time, and then they come back. And that's all the story is, and it stops very short. Mm. And. What's great about it is that the journey is just there and back but she does this marvellous little twist at the end where you suddenly remember it's called Teenage Punk and it's sort of not quite about the cranes at all. And the Teenage Punk, who's so full of bravado, just turns to her and says, bad language alert, fuck, that was scary. (laughs) And she says... She makes some sort of quick allusion to the Bible and not scary at all. And he says, yeah, right, teacher. And the last line is, I think, something along the lines of, he had an attitude even back then. And what's great, I think, about the story is that marvellous little swerve at the end. Mm -hmm. You think it's about going somewhere Mm. to see beautiful cranes. And that is very beautifully simply described. But actually, its subject is the relationship between this boy and adults
1: mm-hmm.
0: and how he's he's sort of unreachable then in some way. But also she's looking back and remembering.
1: Yeah.
0: And we're invited to suppose... You know what is later at atti- if he had an attitude even back then, mm. then what was the rest of his life like?
1: Yeah,
0: all of which is opens on a kind of void. You don't,
1: you don't get to hear about it at all, and I think that's what makes it so moving. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Obviously, I, you know, I I don't have uh, any good words for this, but the feeling of just being dropped immediately into a story, and it's incredibly intense. And then just it, I wanted to know more. <laughs> Except that this is the form that you've chosen, but I, I, I wanted to know what happened next. I wanted to know. I want to fill in those bits exactly. It's great. She's. I think it's a real art knowing when to. Yeah. End a story. Yeah.
0: Because. You know, it comes back to this thing. We're so hung up on the idea of resolution, and the truth is that in most, in an awful lot of writing, your re. I'm always saying this to students. Your 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 real end, is often a kind of sort of step into space, mm-hmm. and it's and it's. Considerably, you know, earlier actually in the story than you know you, in in people who are writing for the first time they want to tie everything up and so you yeah. know various people, things have to come together and a meaning has to be revealed and and the lesson you gradually learn is that the reader will do the revealing. Your job is to present.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's what Lucia Berlin I think knew how to do instinctively. And the other story uh, does this in a different way because it's about it's taken from a different time in her life. So she's brought up her children, and she's she's in New Mexico, I think. Uh, Might be wrong, Um, but she's later on in her life. uh, She's got arthritis, breathing problems. Um, She's had her alcoholism, and she survived it. But she's always got this kind of oxygen tank. She's dragging Mm -hmm. around with her, Um, and. She needs something done in her bathroom, she needs some tiles laid, and she can't get someone to do it. And she eventually gets this man on the phone, and she just really loves his sexy voice. Uh, and it's it, so this interesting thing about voice recognition because he turns up and he's not really like the voice at all. He's obviously the reason he hasn't been responding to phone calls, the reason it's been difficult to get hold of him is that he's clearly alcoholic, reeks of alcohol, got bloodshot eyes, mm-hmm. you know, brown teeth, and she likes him anyway mm-hmm. because she suddenly recognises something else, which is someone who's going through the, what she's been through. And it, listeners, I just can't recommend this highly enough, this yeah. story, BF and Me. It's immensely moving in three pages, I was I was practically in tears by the end because she just understands both why he's attractive as a person, mm. his predicament and plight, and she just cuts him endless slack. Yeah. And it's so rare that you read stories about people with addictions like that.
1: It's true, there's always lot oh, here is a problem and some sort of resolution to that problem rather than a recognition and an understanding and an affection for it. She likes the smell, she likes what he smells of. Yeah, it's great. It's i just, I
0: just read a tiny oh, bit at the end because it's so nice. Yeah, the, the whole story again is called A Manual for Cleaning Women um, by Lucia Berlin. We settled on a price for the job and he said he'd come on Friday morning. He was obviously sore after bending down. "'Gasping for air, he limped out of the house, "'stopping to lean on the kitchen counter "'and then on the stove in the living room. "'I followed him to the door, making the same rest stops.' <laughs> "'Cause they're both kind of... "'They're both sort of respiratory basket cases. "'At the foot of the stairs, he lit up a cigarette "'and smiled up at me. "'Glad to meet you.' "'His dog waited patiently in the truck. "'He never came on Friday. "'He didn't call, so I tried his number on Sunday.' No answer. I found the newspaper page with all the other numbers. None of them answered either. I imagined a western bar room filled with tile setters, all holding bottles or cards or glasses, their heads asleep on the table. (laughs) He called yesterday. I said hello and he said, How you been, LB? Swell, (laughs) BF. Wondering if I'd ever see you again. How about I stop by tomorrow? Sounds good to me. Around ten? Sure, I said, any time.
1: It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's the the
0: any time is the kicker, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah. You yeah. may, you may not, you know. It doesn't matter that much anyway. Mm. And it's all done without, it's all, nothing happens, but actually all that emotion is dramatised. Never once does she say anything like, I felt sorry for him or I, I understood. yeah. But It's all done in the exchange.
1: And the comments, the sort of reveal on how restricted her life is when she's complaining, he sets the tiles and he say, no, you can't go in your bathroom for three days. And she says, well, how am I supposed to, you know, how do people cope? Normally they've got more than one bathroom. You know, it's just lovely. It was just, yeah. That's terrific. Yeah. And the people have always thought that she had a... That people always thought that she's younger from her voice. Both oh, that's of them, bit, yeah, 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 that was lovely. So she's sort of saying two things that are contradictory at
0: the same time. You, she says, you, you always know, we always knew who the reliable doctors were when she worked in the hospital because she was a switchboard operator. Because the ones with the sexiest voices were the best doctors and the most compassionate. We would sort of vie to answer <laughs> their calls. And then, at the same time, she's saying it's actually got nothing to do with the voice. <laughs> it was completely misleading.
1: No, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a great example. As you, you, know, you and I have talked a lot about this, but the, um, the, the sort of weird freedom of voices from being anchored to your... You know, there are physical things about your body that will affect your voice, but there's loads of things that don't. You have a lot more freedom about who you are when you can just be heard. Yeah. And I remember... I mean, everyone must have had this experience, seeing different people's voices you have become very familiar with and then you see them. Charlotte, was it Charlotte Green on the Today programme? I nearly fell over when I first saw Charlotte Green. She (laughs) could not have looked less like what I was expecting her to look like based on her voice. But, of course, we're all doing that all the time and people are doing it to us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, For the record, we are exactly as beautiful as we we sound. Yes. (laughs) That's very important that you don't try and confirm or disconfirm any of this by looking for photographs of me online. Just go with the lovely voice. And um, on that note, I think, <laughs>
0: alluding to our, our our vocal and actual
1: personal beauty, I think we should um, perhaps say goodbye. Thank you very much. We've been The New Romantics. I'm Sophie Scott. I'm Will Eaves,
0: And we look forward to you tuning in to get more of our personal beauty next time. See
1: you next time.